Chapter 4. What's different about a dog? Your kosher meal is here, the flight attendant said. What? I said puzzled. I didn't order a kosher meal. And then I looked to my left. Jeff Liverman, one of my best friends, was holding his laugh as hard as he could. He had ordered me a kosher meal since we were on the same flight home and simply wanted to get me one more time. Months later, I got him back. Together, we were speaking in Columbus, Ohio at a church missions conference. There, my other best friend, Chip Wyant, was the CEO of a German family restaurant known for its cream puffs. I told Jeff he had to try these out because they were so good. Finally, the meal came. We finished our main course and ordered cream puffs. Three identical cream puffs were put on the table for us. Little did Jeff know that I had asked Chip to have some of his employees heavily mix one of them with salt. The puffs made it to the right destination and the moment came. Jeff got a small bite on a spoon and lifted it to his mouth. Chip stopped him. Jeff, he said. These are world-renowned. Jeff then got a bigger bite and placed it entirely in his mouth. Chip asked, what do you think? Jeff answered politely with food still in his mouth. It's, um, good. Then I got Jeff's attention and said, kosher, isn't it? Upon hearing that, Jeff jumped up, slammed his hands on the table and spit it out into his napkin. He knew he had been had. Three cream puffs. One was different. Three people sitting in a church. They all look alike. They all act alike. But one can be very different depending upon his heart attitude, depending upon whom he believes the Bible is all about. Dogs know that God is the main character of the Bible, and they see how Jesus honored his father. They know that Jesus lived for his father's glory, and therefore they should too. The scriptures tell us that Jesus not only continually pointed to the father's glory, but he also died primarily for the father's glory. Look at John chapter 12, verses 27 and 28. Jesus was thinking about the pain of the cross. He said, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father. Wait, before we read what comes next, remember, it's in the context of the pain, agony, and suffering he is going to endure. This is no insignificant time, especially because he is totally focused on why he has to suffer. Here he gives the ultimate reason why he is going to go through the upcoming agony. What does he say? To emphasize what is being said in this passage, it helps to look at what the text does not say. Notice it does not say, Father, save these kind, wonderful, worthy people from hell. They don't deserve it. Why? That wasn't Christ's primary focus as he faced the cross. Some readers may be thinking, if he didn't say that, if he wasn't focused on us, then what was his focus? Listen again as we read the next words. Father, glorify your name. Now, Jesus died for us, and he died for the Father's glory. Here's the big question. Which one takes priority? In this passage, Jesus seems to give us his answer. He is focused primarily on his Father's glory. His Father's glory is the highest priority. Oh, how cats hate to hear those words, and how comfortable dogs are with hearing them. Christ does love us. Never doubt your childhood memories of singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But we suggest that his love for us is secondary to living for his Father's glory. Unfortunately, too many top Christian songs miss the point theologically when they basically say, we are the only things Jesus thought about when he went to the cross. No, that's not true. When he went to the cross, he did so primarily for the glory of his Father. Have you considered that this great desire to glorify his Father is the reason why he desires to answer our prayers? 
I thought he did it because he wants to bless us, thinks the cat. That answer is not incorrect, but it is incomplete. Dogs know the deeper answer. In John chapter 14, verse 13, this scripture points us to why Jesus delights in answering our prayers. Let's listen in as Jesus speaks to his followers. John chapter 14, verse 13. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Jesus wants to answer our prayers so that the Father will be glorified. Jesus has a passion to see his Father exalted, to see his Father lifted up and praised. Jesus did his work for the glory of the Father. In his prayer in John chapter 17, verse 4, Christ says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Christ did his work to bring his Father glory. Defining glory. Glory, just what is it? While we all have a good idea of what it means, or at least something that comes to mind when we mention the word, it is hard to give an adequate definition of glory. And if we don't know what it is, how can we discuss it? We liken the challenge of defining glory to dissecting a frog. True, you can learn more things about the frog by dissecting it, but in the end, the frog dies. <laughs> like defining love, you can give it words, but in doing so, it loses much of the emotion that makes love what it is. In the same way, we can strive to define the glory of God, but in doing so, we may be missing the fullness, the majesty, the mystery of what it's all about. Acknowledging the dangers and the risk, let's try to move ahead without killing it. <laughs> Throughout the Bible, there are descriptions of God's glory made visible and evident. God's glory was often associated with a glorious shining or brilliant light that is referred to as the Shekinah glory of God. It appeared when the Old Testament tabernacle was dedicated and again when the permanent temple was dedicated. It was shown in the New Testament when the angels announced the birth of Jesus, the glory of the Lord shone around them, Luke chapter 2, verse 9. God's glory was obvious to the disciples when Jesus was transfigured and to Paul when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. This kind of glory is a display of the presence of God. This is what Moses wanted to see, but God said it was not possible to see his glory in its fullness and live in Ezekiel 33 verse 18. If you are feeling a little disappointed that you have not experienced God's glory, be patient. The opportunity will come. The book of Revelation tells us that in heaven there will be no need of the sun or the moon, for the glory of the Lamb will provide all the light needed. Revelation chapter 21, verse 23. If there is no need of the sun or the moon, can you imagine how superbly brilliant this will be? This will be a light that you won't want to miss. Glory is manifested in the presence of God, but we also see it revealed in his creativity. This is what Psalm 19, verses 1 to 2 is talking about. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. By their very existence, God's creation glorifies him and declares his glory. We see this not only in the heavens, but also in the beauty of a flower, in a blade of grass, in the leaves of a tree, in the nut of an avocado, in the hardness of a rock, and in the softness of a baby's skin. God is so creative and each expression of his creativity declares his glory along with the heavens. This is why we, like the psalmist, can say, For you made me glad by your deeds, O Lord. I sing for joy at the works of your hands, Psalm 92, verse 4. Singing for joy at the works of his hands is a way of glorifying God. God's character also reveals his glory. Do you remember Moses' request of the Lord in Exodus chapter 33? He asked the Lord to show him his glory. How did the Lord respond? The text says, 
Again, the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. When God speaks of his goodness, he is talking about his character. When God proclaims his name, he is talking about who he is. That is his character. When he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, compassion on whom I will have compassion, he is talking about living out or expressing his character. Moses says, show me your glory, and God talks about his character. God's character reveals his glory. In light of the above, we want to define God's glory without killing it in the following way. God's glory is defined as any revelation or expression of his excellency in his presence, creativity, and or character. Let me repeat that. God's glory is defined as any revelation or expression of his excellency in his presence, creativity, and or character. If that is his glory, how do we glorify God? It would be nice to know since the Bible repeatedly commands us to glorify God in Psalm 34, 3, Psalm 63, 3, Psalm 69, 30, and Psalm 86, 12, just as a few examples. To illustrate this, let us draw your attention to the moon. According to an old song, lovers like to stroll by the light of the silvery moon. But when we think about it, we realize that the moon doesn't give light. It has no light of its own. It merely reflects the light of the sun. It is a good analogy for what we do when we give glory to God. Just as the moon does not have light to give, we do not really have any glory to give. But just as the moon reflects the light of the sun, we can reflect the glory of God. When we glorify God, we are reflecting one of those three areas of God, his presence, his creativity, or his character, back to him and other people in some way. Thanking God for all the good things he has given us reflects his glory and is a reflection of his character. Drawing a flower or designing a skyscraper reflects God's creativity in us and brings God glory. Being with someone who is hurting allows God's presence in us to be in their lives and that glorifies God. One of the ways I test my teaching is to see if a child can understand it. I tend to learn more from the children's sermon than from the adult sermon. Therefore, I many times use my kids to see if I am communicating clearly enough. I have found that if children do not understand it easily, it will not stick for adults. So if the above was understandable, but you want an easier handle for it, let me tell you the children's version. Glorifying God means living in such a way that will make God famous. There, plain and simple, isn't it? As the subtitle of this book says, living passionately for the glory of God simply means living passionately to make God famous. Ask yourselves these questions. How am I making God famous to my spouse? How am I making God famous to my children? How am I making God famous where I work? How am I making God famous to my classmates? How am I making God famous as a single person? How am I making God famous driving down the road? Just as your heart knows when it's in love, Without a full definition of it, your spirit will know when it's worshiping God in spirit and truth. And when your heart cannot contain the fullness of what it is feeling and begins to shout, I magnify the Lord, I worship you, I bow before you and delight in you. Praise the name of the Almighty God, our Lord and Savior. God will know it too. Gerald says that when he looks intently into his wife's eyes, she looks back and says, I know, even though I do not say a word. In the same way, God will know when your heart is full, your spirit is brimming over, your mind is so focused, and your words too inadequate to express, reflect, or radiate His goodness, when all you can say is glory. 
God will know what's really inside, and He will accept your worship and praise. At that moment, you will have glorified Him. Jealous God Ministries The ministry of Unveiling Glory has not always gone by this name. The original name of our ministry was Destination 2000. But when the new millennium came, the expiration date or shelf life of that name expired. At that time, we began to look for a new name for the ministry. We considered everything we could imagine to try to find the right name. We finally came up with the name Jealous God Ministries. The name was based on Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We thought it was a great name, so we began to do some market research. With an email list of about 300 names, we asked the question, What do you think about the name Jealous God Ministries? Nine out of ten said it was a terrible name. Even some mature Christians just didn't care for the thought of it. We reminded them that it had a biblical reference, but they didn't care. They said this because of the negative connotations that the word jealous carries with it. Even though it came directly from the second commandment, most people said, don't name it that. They assumed all jealousy is wrong. Why such a negative reaction? Usually whenever jealousy is talked about, there are negative connotations surrounding it. Cain was jealous of Abel and a murder resulted. If you can remember, Tanya Harding was jealous of Nancy Kerrigan, and a crime was committed. John Hankley Jr. was jealous of Jodie Foster's attention, and an assassination of President Reagan was attempted. When we hear about jealousy in the news, it is negative. But could there be a positive jealousy? No way, you might be thinking. But there can be a positive jealousy. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. There can be a good, healthy, godly jealousy. But is it okay for God to be jealous for God? Cats fight the idea. Dogs know it's scriptural, and without it, nothing would make sense. Do you remember a few paragraphs back when Jesus was thinking about all the pain and suffering he had to go through, and he said to his father, glorify your name? Well, in that very next verse, God responds to his son. Now, before we look at what he says, think through what you think he might say. Cats would guess he says something like, Son, I appreciate your wanting to glorify me, but I don't need all that attention, so let's focus on them. But that's not what the Father says. Look at how he responds. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. John chapter 12, verse 28. God is saying, you're right, son. It's about me. When the crown of thorns is placed on your head... The nails are driven into your hands and the spear thrust into your side. When your lifeless body is taken from the cross and placed in the tomb, it's about my glory shining and radiating throughout all creation. God, the Father, is jealous for his own name. When you first hear that, deep down inside, cats want to cry out, No, that's not right. God can't be jealous for himself. That just can't be. Cats tend to assume that God must be on some kind of an ego trip if he is jealous for himself. Perhaps God is up in heaven and just feels bad. He is just being self-centered and having a bad day. They might be wondering, does God have a poor self-image? Is he brooding in the heavens waiting for someone to praise him? How can God be jealous in a good way? In order to understand this, we need to ask a simple question, and that is this. Whom does God live for? Can you imagine God walking the streets of gold, scratching his chin and asking himself, hmm, whom should I live for? You know, uh, I got a lot to offer. What should I point to, lift up, exalt, and glorify? Think through that quickly. What could God's options be? Knowing there could be a multitude of answers, we'd like to suggest four. Creation, the angels, humanity, 
and himself. Let's think through those. All of creation is temporal. It exists for a time, but will be gone someday. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 tells us. So why would an eternal God live for something temporal? That just doesn't make sense. So strike that one off your list as a possible option. The second option is angels. Why doesn't he live for the angels? There's nothing in the rule book that says Christ couldn't have forgiven Satan's sin along with the other fallen angels. Well, there's been no sign of repentance, and the scriptures tell us that there never will be. But the Bible does tell us that Satan came to steal and kill and destroy in John 10.10. So that doesn't look like a very good option. What's in the third option? Well, there's humanity, mankind, people, us. Why not live for us? Cats say, yes, that makes sense. Christ left his Father's glory for us. He came down to the earth to die for us. And since he died for us, he must live for us. It's about us, cries the cat. But dogs challenge that and ask, what does the Bible say about us that shows we're worth living for? A quick glance at Mark chapter 7 tells us, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within... Out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lawness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23. Let's be honest. Are we worth living for? Dogs realize that in our condition alone, we are not worthy and not worth living for. We've seen that creation isn't worthy, it's temporal. We've seen that the angel aren't worthy, they've fallen with no sign of repentance. We've seen that mankind isn't worthy, we're sinful. So what's left for God to live for? Himself. Why would God choose to live for himself? What does he represent? Well, the Bible refers to God in the following ways. The Lord of glory, the King of kings, the great physician, the righteous one, the shelter from the storm, the architect and builder of all things, the defender of widows, the helper of the fatherless, the source of eternal salvation, the alpha and the omega, the maker of all things, the good shepherd, the great reward, the one who holds the keys to the gates of hell, the God of grace, the God of hope, the God of love, the God who gives endurance, the God who blots out our transgressions, a very present help in time of need, an awesome God, a faithful God, omniscient, omnipresent, merciful, the only good God. Whom would we live for if we had those options? Well, that's a no-brainer, someone might say. I'd live for God because of who he is and what he does. Well, listen, why would God be any different? If it's a no-brainer for us, it's a no-brainer for God. God lives for God. He lives to radiate his glory in billions upon billions of different ways. Well, the cat counters, then why did Christ die for us? Dogs know it's for the reason that brought the Father pleasure. First, the image of God resides inside of us. It was the Father who put the image inside of us. Therefore, as he has redeemed us, he is redeeming his image that is woven into the fabric of who we are. Second, God is fulfilling his initial purpose and plan for us, to have fellowship with him. Third, God is expressing the very essence of who he is. He is love, and he loves his creation. He is expressing that love unconditionally. He is also full of compassion and mercy. Therefore, he is living for himself, expressing himself in all that he stands for, and radiating his glory. Cats have a hard time understanding that. They quickly counter and say, God tells us not to live for ourselves. So why would it be completely appropriate if God would live for himself? God can't live for God. But dogs know that the rules that apply to creation do not necessarily apply to the Creator, in the same way that rules in your home for children do not necessarily apply to adults. A rule for a small child might be, 
Don't take your cereal into the living room. You can't handle it. You'll make a mess of it. There's carpeting there. But no one will discipline an adult who carries a bowl of cereal across the same carpet. Why? The adult can handle it without making a mess. In the same way, we can't live for ourselves because in our sinful condition, we can't handle it. We'd make a mess of it. But God, in his righteousness, mercy, and grace, and love, and more, can live for himself without making a mess of it. We can't live for ourselves and not sin, but God can. How can God live for himself and not sin? Because he is love. And dogs know that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us, Love does not boast, is not proud, is not rude, is not self-seeking. Cats want to fire back. Well, if God isn't boastful, if he's not proud, if he's not self-serving, then how can God live for God? If God is going to exalt anything that is good, he must exalt himself. Anything less than himself wouldn't be best. No matter how good it may be, it's not the best. It would be unworthy. Living for himself is God's only option, and it's not a contradiction. No one and nothing is gooder than God. It's poor grammar, but great theology. When God exalts himself, it's as if he is making the following statements. If there are any values that are best for my creation, anything that I want to uphold, any ideals or ethics I esteem, any principles worth living for, any power or creativity worth displaying, any standards worth setting apart, they are mine. Therefore, I will live for and protect everything I stand for. I will exercise my power and my creativity, my compassion and my mercy. I will do what I want to do. And because I am love, I want to and will love unconditionally. I want to and will give sacrificially. I want to and will be merciful. I want to and will give grace and peace to those I love. I will do all of this and more because I am a jealous God. The Bible calls God holy. The word holy in Greek often means consecrated to God, which means devoted or dedicated to the service and worship of God. Now, when the Bible declares holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, it is actually saying that God is set apart for God. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. God is devoted to the service of God and dedicated to the worship of God. Men and women, God leaves no doubt in our minds that he is completely dedicated to living for his glory. He is unwilling for anything to usurp that place because everything else is something less. This is why he is a jealous God. God even calls himself by the name Jealous. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, we read, Do not worship any other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Do you realize that getting down on your knees and praying and starting off by saying, Dear Jealous, is very biblical. He is a jealous God. He is holy. He is set apart for himself and God lives for himself. This seems to put God in a paradoxical situation. Why? In living for himself, he is constantly living for others. Yes, that's the whole reason why he points to himself, because he is such a giving being, such a giving God. Since he rejoices in living for others, it looks like he is not living for himself. But he is. He is living out who he is. That's another reason why he upholds, protects, and lives for his way of life. So he lives for himself because he's constantly living for others, you might be thinking. Yes, that's exactly it. God lives for himself, expressing mercy, compassion, and unconditional love to us. You see, if God were to live for anyone or anything else, he would be committing idolatry. He can't do that. 
God lives for God. He is the only being worth living for or pointing to. This concept was taught to a fifth grade Sunday school class to see if they could understand the principle. The class was held on a Saturday night and one particular little girl had obviously been out in the sun all day. Her body was red with sunburn and I could tell her mind was elsewhere. But at the end, every child was asked if they learned something. When it was her turn, she surprised everyone by quickly saying, Yes, I learned that it's okay for God to be (laughs) self-centered. Although the words she chose carried negative connotations, she was exactly right. It's okay for God to be self-centered. Dogs want to understand all of life in terms of God's glory. In concluding this chapter, I want you to see that everything is about the glory of God. Dogs want to understand all of life in terms of God's glory. Why? Listen to the following text. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And from Romans 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Men and women, everything in life, not just in Christianity, will eventually result in glory to the Father, making himself famous. It is the glory that is the end goal. Everything else is merely a means toward this consummate goal. This is how dogs are different. They understand that God's jealousy is not contradictory, hypocritical, or the bad result of an ego problem. It makes sense when you take time to contemplate it. Dogs recognize this and are at peace.